You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Source Science listeners, my name is Liz Mahood and I'll be your host for this week's episode. Today on Locally Source Science, we'll be hearing from people who took science into their own hands. First up on the show, Esther Rakusen interviews three scientists who've collaborated to prototype a DIY microscope that can be constructed cheaply for use in college laboratory classes. They hope that this microscope can be used in areas with little to no access to conventional microscopes, which can be very expensive. Next up on the show, Esther Rakusen chronicles her adventures with birding. A screech owl has taken up residence in a nearby tree, and Esther's human neighbors have gathered to observe it. Finally, we'll observe Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with a piece on the life and work of Dr. Roger Chan who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2008. First up, here's Esther Rakusen interviewing Dr. David Deacher, Dr. Bruce Johnson, and Dr. James Ryan on their DIY microscope. I'm Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. Educators at undergraduate institutions want to teach new molecular techniques in neuroscience research to their students. But the cost of equipment to teach those techniques in neurobiology lab courses can be prohibitive. So, a couple of years ago, scientists at Cornell and Hobart and William Smith Colleges set out to create do-it-yourself research equipment. Drs. David Deacher and Bruce Johnson from the Cornell Department of Neurobiology and Behavior applied for a grant from the Cornell Center for Teaching Innovation to construct inexpensive neuroscience research tools that could be used in undergraduate neurobiology courses. Dr. James Ryan at Hobart and William Smith College brought additional funding from his home institution. Deacher and Johnson worked with Ryan to build a precision micromanipulator for neurophysiology experiments and a fluorescence microscope for viewing neurons. They used parts that they found online or created using 3D printing. To find out more about why and how the scientists set out to construct DIY neuroscience equipment and how they accomplished their goals, I spoke with Drs. Ryan and Deacher. Dr. Ryan told me that he and his colleagues had three goals or motivations to create the equipment. The original motivation for it um, came from frustration uh, that I had when I was teaching my neuroscience course. You know, the equipment is often extremely expensive. And even though the department might have one epifluorescence microscope, uh, putting a whole class through one microscope to collect data is very awkward. And so I was interested in trying to, um, I don't know what the right phrase would be, democratize it a little bit. So build our own equipment um, and make it 
sort of able to do all the research grade things that you could do with a, a very expensive piece of equipment, but have the students build their own pieces of equipment so they would learn how the machinery actually works. Um, and at the same time, they would um, use that equipment to do a variety of different sort of very sophisticated um, neuroscience experiments. So that was the original motivation. Another secondary motivation was to eventually build out a curriculum based on the students building their own equipment. And that's perfect for STEM because students would have to know physics to build the microscope. They'd have to know some chemistry, some biology, a little bit of computer science, um, all to put the equipment together and do the experiments. And so the future is to build some curricula around the microscope and around the manipulators. A third motivation was um, I've worked a long time in Africa, and I know that there are great scientists there that who, who don't have access to resources. And if we could make it inexpensive enough and build your own, then perhaps universities in, in lesser developed nations would uh, be able to buy the kits and put the materials together and um, do the same kinds of things. Dr. Ryan proceeded to talk about how he and his colleagues started to work on creating the microscope. It started out, we were originally planning on using uh, a Raspberry Pi device, which is a small uh, single board computer with a camera attached to use it as a microscope. That didn't really work out very well, primarily because the optics are not of high enough quality. Um, So then we had to go back to the drawing board. We had to come up with some new plans um, and basically take the design of a regular epifluorescence microscope and really scale it down to just the essential components needed to uh, image living neurons, let's say. And so it took a quite a bit of back and forth redesigning, building new prototypes and so forth until we could get um, the final version that we know works really well, students can build easily and provides high quality data. Here, Dr. David Deacher describes how they collected the various parts, including the camera, lenses, and the stage that would hold the samples. Uh, there, there are these new um, inexpensive CMOS cameras that were really developed for, you know, industrial use, like inspecting, you know, parts coming off an assembly line. And, uh, but they're quite sensitive and, uh, and also very inexpensive. So uh, the one in our, in our setup is uh, less than $200. So that's, it's a very high quality camera and ordinarily scientific camera designed for this purpose is, you know, five, 10, 15,000, even more. Uh, the objective lens uh, can be bought pretty inexpensively. We have a long uh, working distance 20x objective and that works fine uh and we use we had to play around a little bit with different sources of blue leds and some lenses to kind of get the light right but uh that worked out okay too jim ryan uh put together kind of uh using um 3d printed parts a kind of the pieces that we can connect all those pieces together so we have uh, in one port, we have the blue light going in. Uh, we have our objective lens attached to that. And we also have our uh, CMOS camera mounted on a C mount above. 
you know, we tried out different kinds of bases to mount our microscope on, and we settled on this uh, uh, aluminum uh, optical breadboard, which seemed to be the most stable. And uh, Jim uh, found these aluminum towers that we can mount the microscope on. And then uh, we tried various kinds of platforms uh, to mount the slide because uh, you need the slide to be pretty stable and not shake at all. One of the challenges is that in order to illuminate the sample for epifluorescence, there has to be a light source. That light has to then be reduced to a specific wavelength to visualize the fluorescence compound in the sample. Here, Dr. Dietscher explains how the light is channeled through a series of filters. The way the whole process works is you illuminate uh, your sample with a light source, and in this case, uh, we're using a blue LED, which is our, our, our light uh, for excitation. And that passes through a, uh, a filter uh, to filter out extraneous wavelengths so that only a certain wavelength of blue light goes through. Uh, that bounces off a uh, dichroic mirror, and then it goes through the objective lens and hits our sample, which uh, can fluoresce. And so the blue light hits our sample and we have um, in our sample, we have uh, a fluorescent protein called G-CAMP, which absorbs blue light and fluoresces green um, when calcium levels rise. And that passes up through uh, the, this dichroic mirror and through a, another filter before it hits the camera. So only green light goes through the filter at the end. In Dr. Dietscher's lab class, the students will be looking at larvae of the fruit fly Drosophila. They will try to stimulate the larvae with solutions that will cause calcium levels to rise in neuronal cells. Here, Dietscher explains how this works. Normally, calcium levels are really low, and but when the calcium levels rise, they rise quickly when the neuron's active. And so uh, inside the neuron, we have this this sensor called G-CAMP, it's, um, it's a variant of green fluorescent protein, which uh, maybe many of you have heard of. And But what's special about it is uh, when the calcium is bound, the fluorescence goes up. So, um, so as, as the neuron depolarizes, calcium rushes in, it binds to this G-CAMP, uh, the calcium causes the fluorescence to go up, and so we can image that neuron. Finally, the microscope plugs into a laptop, then images of the samples are collected and analyzed. The whole thing just plugs into my laptop computer, and we can control how the camera works. And um, kind of the one of the challenges is finding our sample. It's kind of a small sample <laughs> when we're first focusing, but uh, after that, uh, the camera is quite sensitive, and we can pick up these uh, amazing uh, calcium signals. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I'm reporting on a group of neuroscientists who are developing inexpensive do-it-yourself tools for undergraduate neuroscience classes. I spoke to Dr. David Dietscher back in mid-March 2021 and asked him about the experience that his students will have when they start to construct the DIY epifluorescence scope. 
in, in a few weeks, I'm going to be uh, having the students in my lab class uh, build their own microscope uh, using kind of the parts that we figured out. Uh, and then um, I uh, generated some transgenic Drosophila, which their neurons uh, will glow with this uh, GCAM construct, and they're going to look at the pattern of these neurons glowing. And so we're going to uh, have them kind of understand the principles of fluorescence, uh, do some initial experiments with the filters just to see how they work with, uh, with LED lights and shining them on different fluorescent dyes, uh, and then, uh, and then ha have them assemble those pieces together and then image uh, different, uh, you know, animals. I asked Dietrich to explain more about the Drosophila larvae that the students will be studying. I've engineered these Drosophila larvae to have uh, G-camp in uh, the neurons that cause the larvae to move. And uh, what we do is we take out the nervous system of the larvae and these neurons still think that they're supposed to make the larvae move. And so they move, they fire in a certain sequence uh, to either go forward or backward, and we can image the sequence of these neurons uh, lighting up. Finally, I asked Dietcher what he hopes that the students will gain from their experience building their own microscope. Well, what we would really like to do is inspire students to um, not be afraid of making their own equipment, uh, trying to understand the principles of how that equipment works and functions, uh, in doing experiments, um, you know, often scientific equipment, people just look at it as a black box. You put your sample into the box. It tells you a reading or the answer, and uh, you don't really know how it works. And so we want to kind of remove some of that mystery and also enable students to kind of think, hey, I can, I can design something to measure uh, this quantity or the, this activity of neurons. And I don't have to rely on some expensive piece of equipment. I could, you know, do it myself. You're listening to this broadcast in May 2021. And as you might imagine, the students have now completed their microscopes and have observed the, some Drosophila larvae. I had a chance to speak with one of the students, Joanna Papadakis, to find out what her experience was like. She is a Cornell senior who is about to graduate with a major in human development and a minor in biology. First off, I asked her what she thought about the experience putting together the microscope. It was so unique, and I think that we often take for granted these sort of fundamental instruments in science. Like you learn in even your most intro bio class that, oh, like the, these are the different microscopes that. Um, came out at like these different points in a timeline across history, but you don't necessarily think about the efforts that go into like making those particular scientific instruments. And so being able to fully construct a fluorescent microscope when you're just given pieces was a really unique experience. And I think that it also has helped all of the students in the course better understand like what goes behind using um, a fluorescence microscope. I wondered what happened if the people in the lab didn't put the microscope together correctly. 
if you didn't um, follow the directions clearly or perhaps you put the lens in backwards, it would be very clear when you're looking through that microscope at the end of um, creating it that you had maybe taken a misstep. And so I think being able to work so carefully while constructing the microscope really gave a lot of meaning to being able to then use it in subsequent experiments. I asked Joanna what she and her lab partner looked at and what their thoughts were. When we use this scope, what we're looking for is generally looking at the central nervous system um, and the ventral ganglion. And from that, we're then looking at specific motor neurons that also are associated with it, and then the synaptic boutons. So we added um, potassium solutions and also calcium solutions to observe changes in fluorescence. And so the goal with these labs were to then use this imaging software that we can plug into our scopes to be able to quantify the changes in fluorescence and also to take videos that we can visually see those changes as well. I wondered what were some of the things that Joanna learned that surprised her the most? My background is in more of the cognitive neuroscience um, field and with that, a lot of the work that I've done and the research I've done has been in humans. And so scaling down to such a small Drosophila model and working at such a microscopic level has been very new to me. Finally, Joanna spoke about how she and her fellow students were able to incorporate aspects of the different STEM sciences to build the microscope and study the Drosophila larvae. So it was really interesting to see how these very, seemingly very different fields, especially at Cornell, where we tend to separate the scientific fields because there's so much um, in each of the different um, departments here, how integrated they can be. And I think that in turn made the project even more gratifying because we understood both in terms of the biological and neurobio side what we were working on, in addition to thinking more about the technical aspects, um, more of the engineering and the electricity and physical aspects that go um, behind it as well. To learn more about the DIY epifluorescence microscope, visit links at our website. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. You just heard Esther Rakusen interview doctors David Deacher, Bruce Johnson, and James Ryan on their inexpensive microscope that they recently designed for use in teaching laboratories. Next up on the show, we'll again hear from Esther about a screech owl that has taken up residence in her neighborhood and encouraged its neighboring humans to do a little citizen science. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Many people have picked up new hobbies, but I started a new routine. Almost every evening, I take a long walk in my neighborhood. As a result, I ended up doing some birding and meeting a few new people. And these are the sounds I hear in the background at dusk. In early March, as I was walking about a quarter mile from my house, I ran into some friends that were aiming their binoculars at a dead tree with lots of holes. Those very special friends, Mark Chow and Miyoko Chu, are very skilled birders. Mark is a member of the Cayuga Bird Club and is known for spearheading the Spring Bird Quest, a fundraiser for the Finger Lakes Land Trust. Miyoko Chu is the Senior Director of Communications at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Mark and Miyoko are also very keen on getting others excited about birds. Despite any public health concerns, 
they did not hesitate to share their binoculars. Before I knew it, I was staring at an adorable but formidable eastern screech owl. By adorable, I mean that he, or she, is small. The owl is a shade of gray a little bit lighter than the tree they are in, and is either tucked into one of several holes or an 18-inch gash in the top of the dead tree. Since that time, I have become infatuated with that owl and visit it on a regular basis. About a week after my introduction to the owl, I ran into Mark and Miyoko at the tree once again. And now it's, now it's quite visible, but it's, a, it's a very blending in with the tree. It's completely all out. So, really? you're Michael? Yeah, Michael. Yeah, Michael, I'm Mark. All right. Yeah, so, um, uh, I recognize you, and I recognize you both, but I do definitely recognize you too, Michael. So, about two-thirds of the way up, just on the, on the side of the tree facing us, not on either side, but just on the, on, the, on the bark facing us, there's a little round hole, and it's a little bit, there's a spot of white that's quite round, but if you go up a little bit more, there's a spot that's more grayish mixed with white. Uh-huh. That's the owl. It's kind of sticking out there? Yeah, I see it. And if you view from the side. Ah, yeah. <laughs> if it would help, and if you don't mind, I mean, uh, I mean, recognizing all the safety precautions. I don't mind sharing these binoculars if you don't mind the safety okay. issues. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with <laughs> Yeah. This is Esther, and, Hi, this, Esther. Is, and this is my wife, Miyoko. Hi, this Miyoko. Is Michael. Are you on it? Yeah. <laughs> Not bad, huh? That is so cool. In mid-April, I saw Mark once again at the tree, showing the pint-sized owl to yet another group of neighbors. It's a, a little spike of wood that sticks up, and the little gray thing with the white spot on top of the spike is where... The owl is perched. How did you even see that? How did you happen to notice it? Yeah, how did you even see we, it? We actually first noticed um, in this tree, we first saw two owls together in February 2020. Oh. And then periodically we'd see one after that in various holes of this dead, dead trunk. Oh, wow. We saw a family here in June, and then we've been seeing one pretty much every day since, in this season, since like mid, what, February or something? I was watching him around 8 p.m. on May 11th, and this time it was my turn to get a neighbor excited about the owl. Oh. Do you want to use my binoculars? Ah. Here. Oh, I see, I see. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Oh my God. I wonder if this owl has found its mate and is working hard to make sure that this breeding season, its family is doing okay. Maybe I'll get to meet some owlets. To learn more about owls and other birds, visit allaboutbirds, that's one word, dot O-R-G. You just heard Esther Rakusen with a piece on local birders. Our final piece on the show is a short summary of the life and research of Dr. Roger Chan, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2008. Hello, locally sourced science listeners. I'm Liz Mahood. In honor of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, Locally Source Science is honoring Dr. Roger Chen, one of the winners of the 2008 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Dr. Roger Chen was born with asthma and was given a chemistry set by his father when he was seven years old. These two factors combined to inspire Dr. Chen's scientific interests when he was a young boy. His initial curiosity with his chemistry set 
led to a pursuit of a career in biochemistry. In high school, Dr. Chien won the Westinghouse Science Talent Search, a nationwide science competition, and went on to Harvard to study chemistry, physics, and chamber music via a National Merit Scholarship. He pursued his graduate career at the University of Cambridge and led a lab at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Chien began researching proteins that fluoresce different colors under UV light. The first protein found to show such behavior was discovered in a jellyfish. This protein fluoresces when the jellyfish is threatened and was originally isolated from the jellyfish by Dr. Osamu Shinomura of the Marine Biological Laboratory and the Boston School of Medicine. By itself, the isolation of this jellyfish protein is not Nobel Prize worthy, but it turned out to be enormously helpful to people studying how different genes are expressed in different organisms. For example, if someone was researching if a specific gene enables yeast to undergo cellular division, they would engineer yeast cells to have a version of this gene that is linked to the jellyfish's gene for the fluorescent protein. Then, when the yeast cell is ready to divide, if the gene in question does help the yeast divide, its DNA will be converted to protein, and the fluorescent protein will then be present. A researcher could then shine UV light onto the yeast cell, and it will glow a certain color. Originally, the only fluorescent protein available to researchers glowed green. This limited researchers to only being able to study one gene at a time. If they tried to study more than one gene in the same organism, it would be impossible to tell which gene was making the green color. However, Dr. Chien's lab was able to modify the protein such that it could glow in different shades of green and yellow. Using proteins isolated from corals, Dr. Chien's lab made new proteins that glowed in shades of red and pink in 2004. These proteins have been used by countless researchers in many different fields and has facilitated understanding of how many biological processes work. For this research, Dr. Chien was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2008. Thank you for listening to Locally Sourced Science. In today's show, you heard Esther Rakusen interview Drs. David Deacher, Bruce Johnson, and James Ryan, and neighborhood birders. I, Liz Mahood, profiled Dr. Roger Chen and was your host. We thank Joe Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. If you'd like to learn more about today's show, listen to archived episodes, or sign up for our podcast, head to www.locallysourcescience.org. <laughs>